Chapter 7 of Herb of Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Eastman. Herb of Grace by Rosa Nuchette Carey. Chapter 7 More Ancient History with Verity. Heart, are you great enough for a love that never tires? O oh, heart, are you great enough for love? I have heard of thorns and briars. Tennyson As the studio door closed behind them, Anna said regretfully, I wish we could have stayed longer, Malcolm. I wanted to see more of that nice Mr. Keston, and I did so long to peep at his picture. Did you? observed Malcolm in a surprised tone, but he was evidently gratified at this expression of interest. Well, we will go back there presently, when he has finished that bit of drapery that is bothering him. Goliath is as nervous as a cat when he is working against time. He and Verity have arranged a regular code of signals, he went on. When the curtain is drawn right across the arch, it means no admittance except on business, and all loafers and trespassers will be prosecuted. On these occasions Verity is a perfect dragon, and he would be an audacious man who would try to force his way in." Anna nodded as though this explanation satisfied her, and then she followed Malcolm up the steep, narrow staircase into a pleasant, well-furnished room with two windows opening onto the balcony. Everything was in good taste and thoroughly well chosen. The dark oak bureau and writing-table, the bookshelves filled with well-bound volumes, the proof engravings on the walls, and a handsome bronze group on the mantelpiece, while the deep easy-chairs and couch gave it an air of comfort. Anna had been there before, but she always reiterated her first remark on seeing it. That it was the most comfortable room she had ever entered, you have such good taste, Malcolm, she would say. Even your paperweight and the coal scuttle are artistic. I am a lover of the picturesque, he would return solemnly, and anything ugly or unsuitable would jar on me. I like subdued tints and mellow rich tones. That is why I bind my books in buff-colored Russian calf. They harmonize so splendidly with the dark oak and the faded russet and brown and blue of the rug. Take my advice, Anna, cultivate your eye, and you will add much to the pleasures of life. When Anna had inspected the latest engraving and tested the Chesterfield couch, a recent purchase, they went out on the balcony until tea was ready. A red-haired, buxom-looking maid brought it in. It was evident that the mistress of the establishment was not without resources, for quite a pretty, tempting little meal was spread on the oval table. There was sponge-cake and shortbread, a dish of fruit, and delicious bread and butter. The beautiful teacups were Malcolm's own property, and had been picked up by him at a fabulous price in Wardour Street, and the little melon-shaped teapot had been a present from his mother. Verity always washed up these teacups herself. She said it was just for the pleasure of handling such lovely things, but in reality she knew Hepsy's clumsy fingers were not to be trusted. 
Anna had only taken her place at the tea-tray, and was manipulating the curiously shaped sugar-tongs rather carefully, when Malcolm looked at her a little searchingly. "'Hurry up,' he said severely. "'How long do you suppose I am going to wait for your opinion of the Keston family?' Then Anna, who had been vaguely alarmed by his judicial tone, filled up the teacups with a reassured air and in a leisurely manner. "'You can hardly expect me to judge of any human being in five minutes,' she answered, with some show of reason. "'That sounds very plausible, my dear, but I can read you like print.' And here Malcolm looked at her squarely. "'You may as well confess, Anna, you are far more struck with Goliath than with poor little Verity.' Anna looked rather guiltily. As usual, Malcolm's penetration had not deceived him. She had been most favorably impressed with the good-humored giant, with his honest face and kindly blue eyes. But Verity, a brown slip of a girl with big solemn eyes, how was she to perjure herself by pretending that she was attracted by such a unique little piece of eccentricity? "'I wish he did not look so like a boy,' she observed in a deprecating voice. But Malcolm took this remark in good part. "'Oh, you mean her hair,' he replied coolly. "'Oh, poor girl, that is the result of brain fever. She had the most wonderful hair you ever saw. When she let it down, it quite swept the floor, and though it was so dark, it had such splendid shades in it. Have you ever seen Keston's Leah and Rachel at the well?' Then, as Anna shook her head, well, Verity was his model for Leah. Leah is filling her pitcher and looking down into the well, so the eyes are hidden. But it is Verity's small brown face to the life. I always say that was his best picture. His Rachel was marvelous, but I liked Leah best. She was more human somehow, and those dark plates of hair escaping from her turban were so beautiful. Poor little Leah! A month later they robbed her of her chief beauty by cutting off her hair. Old Goliath nearly sobbed as he told me. Anna's face was full of sympathy. "'Mr. Keston must be very fond of her,' she returned in such a surprised and dubious tone that Malcolm laughed outright. "'You are not very flattering to poor little Verity,' he observed, but I can assure you that Goliath worships the ground she walks on. They are the happiest couple in the world. Amius is a good fellow and a fine artist, who will make his mark some day when he has got rid of his cranks. But he has not an ounce of his wife's brains. She is the cleverest and brightest little woman I ever met, and she has a heart big enough to hold the whole world." Anna pondered over the splendid eulogium with some surprise. Then she said quickly, "'You must allow me a little time before I can fairly judge of your friends, Malcolm. I know so little about Mrs. Keston. I remember you once promised to tell me about her early life, but somehow there has been no opportunity.' "'Let us go out on the balcony and have our talk there while I enjoy a cigarette,' was Malcolm's answer to this. We must not go back to the studio for another hour. And then Anna took possession of one deck chair, while Malcolm occupied the other. There was a short silence while Malcolm lighted his cigarette. Anna looked down on the broad grey river, 
and a passing steamer with eyes shining with happiness. To her the hour was simply perfect. Malcolm was beside her, and in his kindest and most brotherly mood. What did it matter on what subject they talked? Verity or Cedric or Lincoln's Inn? Anything that interested him would interest her. When Malcolm held forth on his favorite theories, Anna would listen with unflagging attention, and never once hint at her lack of comprehension, although the effort to understand him had made her head ache. The very sound of his voice was music in her ears, and this unconscious flattery was very soothing to his masculine intellect. Malcolm, who had masterful ways of his own, was bent on convincing Anna that she was wrong in her estimate of Verity Keston, and he was very willing at this moment to tell her all he knew of her. "'I have heard all about things from Goliath,' he began, "'and Verity often talks about her old life to me. Neither of them make any secret about it. She was only seven or eight when he first saw her. She had just lost her mother. Her father's name was Westbrook. He was a scene-painter, a thriftless ne'er-do-weel whose intemperate habits had brought them to poverty and broken his wife's heart. But in his sober moments he was good to the child, and she certainly seemed devoted to him. "'Oh, dear, how sad it sounds, Malcolm!' "'My dear, it was far sadder in reality. Think of that lonely little creature, with no one to guide and befriend her, except the woman of the house. In her rough way Mrs. Parker kept watch over the child, but she had children of her own, and a sick husband, and had to drudge and slave for her family and lodgers from morning until night. Oh, I must tell you her answer to a well-meaning district visitor one day, Anna. The lady had just said very sweetly, "'It is so good for us to count our blessings, Mrs. Parker. We are so apt to forget our thanksgivings.' "'Humph!' returned Mrs. Parker. "'I don't reckon that I shall take long in counting mine, unless backaches and singing in your ears are amongst them. But then we have got something to look forward to in the other world. There'll be no wash-tubs and no district visitors there, with their texts and highfalutin nonsense.' Anna laughed merrily. In her quiet way she had a strong sense of humor. I think I like Mrs. Parker, Malcolm. Verity liked her, too. She always says that she owes a great deal to her motherly care. I got a few cuffs sometimes, she once said to me, but I dare say I deserved them. And poor woman, she had troubles of her own to bear. But on cold nights I can't forget how she would come upstairs to tuck me up and see if I were warm enough. And once, when I could not sleep for shivering, she brought me up some hot drink and covered me up in an old shawl of her own. And as long as Mrs. Parker lived, Verity never forgot her. I am beginning to feel interested in her, Malcolm. My dear child, if you could only hear Goliath talk on this subject, your heart would ache for many a day. Think of that poor child growing up to womanhood in such surroundings, spending her days in a dirty bare studio, with only rough dissipated men for her companions. Though to do them justice, they treated her with respect and kindness. Somehow she picked up a desultory education among them. One broken-down old scene-painter taught her to read and write, 
and another, a French artist, taught her the rudiments of French, and also to play on the violin. They all treated me as a plaything, she once said to me, and poor as they were, they would bring me toys and sweets. I think, nay, I am sure, that they were careful of their talk before me, but it was a strange life for a child. Very often I could not see their faces for the cloud of tobacco smoke, and sometimes the atmosphere was so stifling that I preferred to sit outside on the cold, dark landing. Poor mite, what a life! Amias told me once that he should never forget the first time he saw her. He was a mere lad himself of sixteen or seventeen, and a student in a life academy. Some errand had brought him to Westbrook's lodgings. It was a dull, cold January afternoon, and though it was only three o'clock, he said the light was so dim that he nearly stumbled over the child. She was sitting huddled up in the doorway of the studio, with an old red shawl over her head to protect her against the draughts, and a tiny black kitten was mewing piteously in her arms. "'Kitty's crying for her mother, Pussy,' she said, looking at him without the least shyness. "'But I want her to keep me company out here. It is not kind of her to cry.' "'But it is too cold for you and Kitty, too,' observed Amias. "'You had better come in with me.' But the child shook her head. "'No, I durst not,' she whispered. "'Daddy's drunk, and he is flinging things about so hard that Kitty and me might get hurt. So I am making believe we are the prince and princess in the enchanted forest. Will you stop and play with me?' And actually Amias—he was always a good fellow—squatted on the ground beside her and entered into the game. From that day they were the best of friends, and he was Verity's favorite playmate. On Sunday afternoons he took her out to feed the ducks in St. James's Park, or to watch the boys sail their boats on the pond in Kensington Gardens. He was only a poor art student, but he would forgo a meal cheerfully to provide some little treat for his protégé. As the days grew darker with trouble, and Westbrook grew more hopeless and degraded in his habits, the neglected child turned to Amias for help and sympathy. There were terrible scenes towards the last, but I will spare you the fearful details. It was a miracle how any girl of fifteen could endure what Verity had to bear. For some months Westbrook's friends were fully aware that he was hardly accountable for his actions, and there was an attempt made to shut him up in an asylum. It was certain that the man was insane, and that his daughter was not safe from his violence. Amias concurred in this opinion, and the necessary steps were taken. Unfortunately, either the thing was bungled, or Westbrook was too cunning for them, but before they could secure him he had hidden himself in Verity's room, and when the poor child entered he thought she was his keeper and felled her brutally to the ground. They were only just in time to save her. Don't look so pale, Anna, I am not going to harrow up your feelings. It is not a nice story. Westbrook was raving in a straight waistcoat before night, but he did not live many months afterwards. And then Malcolm related the rest of the story. It was after that terrible experience that Verity had brain fever and lost her beautiful hair. She had only just left the hospital when the news of her father's death reached her. It was Amias who told her.
the good fellow had visited her constantly, and as soon as she was strong enough to be moved, he took lodgings for her in a farmhouse in Kent where he had often stayed. The woman of the house was a simple, kindly creature, who had grown up daughters of her own, and Amias knew he could safely trust Verity to her care. No environment could have been better for the girl. The beautiful air, the fresh country sights and sounds, soothed and strengthened her worn nerves. When Verity woke in the morning, instead of the rumbling of carts and wagons, she heard the fluting of blackbirds and thrushes in the orchard below, and the lowing of cows for their pastures. Everything was new and fresh to her. Every flower in the hedgerow, every bird singing in the copse, was a miracle and revelation. The old miserable life had slipped away from her like a disused and faded garment, and her soul seemed newborn and steeped in beauty. "'Oh, the peace and the loveliness of it all!' she would say to Amias when he came down for his Sunday visit. "'Am I really Verity, Verity Westbrook, who used to live in that dreadful Montague Street?' And then she would look wistfully at him, for she had grown strangely timid and self-distrustful. But he would only laugh at her in his kindly way. "'Yea, verily, my child, it is certainly you yourself,' he would answer. "'When nature made you, she broke her mould. There could not be two editions of verity.' Sometimes, when she was low and weak, and memories of the past horrors were too vivid, and even his big laugh and little jokes failed to drive them away, she would cling to his arm and entreat him not to send her back. "'If I see that place again, I shall die,' she once said and the look in her eyes, and the way her small hand went to her throat, as though the very thought impeded her breathing, told him that she spoke the truth. What was he to do with her? That was the question that occupied him for many a day. The summer had passed, and autumn was well advanced before he found the right answer. One October afternoon he had taken her out for a walk as usual, and they had sat down to rest on a bench under a wide-spreading chestnut-tree, overlooking a village green. An aged donkey and some geese were feeding near them, but there was no one in sight. The old gammers and gaffers of the village were sitting by their firesides, for in spite of the sunshine the air was cold, and more than once Verity shivered as she sat. "'The wind is too cold for you, my child,' he said presently, let us walk on. But she shook her head. No, please, let us stay a little longer. I do so love this village. If I were an artist, I would paint it. Amias, interrupting herself, there is something I want to say to you. I have been at dear Colebrook seven months, seven happy, beautiful months, but I am well now and quite strong, and it is time for me to work and get my own living. Verity spoke with great determination, but he noticed that her lips were white and drawn, and that there was a strained look in her eyes, and a sort of pitiful feeling came over him, such as a mother would feel for a suffering child. In spite of her brave words, he knew how she dreaded to face the world, though her womanly pride and spirit would prevent her from telling him so. More than once she had hinted to him that she felt herself a burden on his generosity, 
but at the first word he had checked her. "'How old are you, dear?' he asked by way of answer to her remark. The question seemed to surprise her. "'Oh, Amias, don't you remember? I was seventeen on the first of May, and Mrs. Craven gave us a syllabub in honor of the occasion.' And Verity's dark eyes were a little reproachful. It seemed so strange to her that he could have forgotten that day. But Amias only tugged at his moustache and pondered deeply. "'I have it,' he said briskly. "'Verity, you shall be married on your eighteenth birthday, and you shall marry me.' Then, as the girl shrank from him, and her thin face was covered with a burning blush at these unexpected words, his manner changed and grew very gentle. "'Darling, you need not be afraid of me. Every hair of your head is sacred to me, for I love you dearly. I will take such care of you, my little Verity. You will be my child as well as my wife. You can trust your old friend Amias, can you not?' And though such an idea had never entered her head, Verity's confidence in him was so great that she actually put her hand in his, and promised to marry him. Never for one moment did she repent her resolution, and before the wedding day arrived she had learned to love him dearly. Amias had not long lost his mother, and the old house at Chelsea was empty when he took Verity there after their brief honeymoon. She was almost frightened at its magnificence, until her husband explained to her that they would be too poor to keep it all for themselves, and that a friend of his had taken the drawing-room floor and would live with them. Such were the outlines of the story related by Malcolm, but in reality much of it was only learned later on from Verity's lips. But even the slight sketch as Malcolm told it affected Anna almost to tears. "'Oh, how she must have loved him!' were her first words when he had finished. "'Malcolm, I know you will laugh at my enthusiasm, but I think Mr. Keston is one of the grandest and noblest of men. What a friend he has been to her all her life! She owes her life and peace and happiness to him. What would have become of her when she left the hospital, if he had not cared for her and placed her with those kind people at the farm? One can easily answer that question, returned Malcolm. She would not have been alive now. Her nerves were fearfully shattered, Anna, and she was as weak as a baby when she arrived at the hill farm. Amias told me himself that he carried her into house like an infant. There, dry your eyes, lady fair, all's well that ends well. Now, as our hour is up, I think we may safely venture into the studio again. End of chapter 7